welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. Uh, today, we are thrilled to have on the podcast Julie Caitlin Brown, who is a well-known sci-fi actress. And I believe you are a, are you a producer now or, or, or an agent? Maybe you can I, tell us about your work. Yeah, I'll tell you about the work with Illumina Productions. It's, it yeah. kind of encompasses everything, but yes, I do a lot Great. of it. Yeah. Great, thanks. I'm looking forward to learning all about it. And I just want to say hi to James as well. Hi, James. How are you doing? Hi there. Yeah, we're doing really good. Thanks. We're, we're both very excited. excited. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we're both sci-fi nerds. I am <laughs> more of a uh, Star Trek fan and, and James is more of a Babylon 5 fan. So, yeah. One of the things I loved about science fiction when I was growing up, I was in a back brace up to my neck and down past my bottom for three years from 12 and a half to 16. And um, I was definitely not... It's interesting, as confident as I was in, uh, I was a smart kid, but I uh, did not have a lot of social skills. I was one of six children. I was the oldest girl. I, you know, we had to all pitch in and do things from the, a very, very young age. So when I got the diagnosis of scoliosis, which is a curved back, I was told, you know, you have to be in this brace and you have to work out and you have to uh, do the exercises or you're going to be crippled. So, you know, being the kind of kid I was, I just said, okay, I'm going to do everything I can do. You know, I did too much, really. I probably went crazy on it. But my music saved me. The fact that I could sing and play guitar and I had some outlet creatively because my parents were overwhelmed with all those kids. Um, we definitely had some, uh, my siblings have had emotional challenges. I don't want to get too much into that. That's their private story. But what I'll say is that my mother had her hands full. And so I learned to cope and to do what I could to be helpful, but I did not know what it was like to be normal. And that word normal has plagued me my whole life because normal is relative, uh, culturally, emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually. What is considered normal to you, because that's the way your brain works, is not normal to me. So my journey, and the reason I love science fiction, you asked the question that I read, why do you think people who, have, who are autistic are drawn to science fiction? And I think on a very basic level, there is an inclusive society that we put forward in Star Trek and Babylon 5, specifically those two series. A lot of other sci-fi, it's us against them, aliens against humans. But there's this sense in from Gene Roddenberry and Joe Straczynski, the creators of those series, that eventually human beings will de evolve into a place of inclusiveness, that they will be, use their intellect and their experience to embrace what to them isn't normal, to allow people to be what they be, even if it's not exactly something you want to participate with, when you recognize that you can find your tribe, you can find the people like James did, you know, like you've done, Chris, you found your tribe. You found the people that understand you. You found the people that share your perspective and that it's just different, not wrong. Absolutely. And that's the biggest challenge when we talk about personality issues, autism, Traumatic brain injury, which I'll get into later in my documentary, Noise, because I had a traumatic brain injury five years ago. 
when others push against us because they feel that we are not conforming to their idea of what is normal, they're no longer using their logic to evaluate us. They've gone right to fight or flight. They've gone right to protection. They've gone right to defensiveness because they're frightened by something they don't understand. And if you took a moment, just a moment to step back and say, you know, I don't know why that person is doing what they're doing. Now, if it's violent, if it's really antisocial, you can choose not to participate with that person. But if it's your family member, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your children, you really can't walk away. You, some people do, but you do have this obligation to investigate why they're behaving the way they are. So we had experiences in my family where we had learning issues. We had things like they're called IEP in the United States, individual education plan. And I watched my sisters and my brother and myself dealing with these children who were trying to be mainstreamed into a school, but the schools were not be get, weren't given the funding to really have the assistance in the classroom to make sure that each child was getting their education in the way they could process it. So the reason science fiction is something that people who are challenged in many ways gravitate towards, inclusiveness, acceptance, allowing, and the hope of a brighter future where eventually humans will learn to embrace non-conformity, still with consequence and still with boundaries. So the whole sci-fi situation was born out of Joe, and I didn't know Mr. Roddenberry, I know his son, but I know George Takei very well and, and Patrick Stewart, who did know Gene. And I had many conversations with Joe Straczynski when I was in the top on Babylon 5. And we talked a lot, because I'm also a writer, about what motivated them to be so strong in their choice that we as a society must learn to bring each other together. And usually it's with a common foe, isn't it? So what they do is they say some outside thing is impacting us. We must all band together. One of my favorite sci-fi shows is Independence Day. Why? Because an outside force came in. We were food, basically. They saw us as something that they needed to survive, and we had to band together to defeat it, put aside all of our differences and find a common goal. That's why people who are challenged, that's why me in a back brace loved science fiction, because I was welcome there. Fandom too. Fandom is so inclusive. It's one of the best gifts of sci-fi fans around the world is that they truly are some of the most generous and insightful people It's been my pleasure to work very closely with some individuals who have autism and we've, we've had some very, very moving and, and insightful conversations and, and things have changed for them. They changed for me. So. I mean, there's so much to unpack there and and I really think everything you said there is fascinating and I fully agree. I think the the point that you're making about sci-fi, especially shows like Babylon 5 and Star Trek representing hope, and a, a different, better, more inclusive and accepting way of 
understanding uh, and approaching difference is really is really really appealing you're absolutely right and it's probably particularly appealing for people who've experienced rejection and yeah. discrimination and have been on the other side of of that kind of philosophy um and and therefore makes that that all the more sort of powerful and and exciting and uh, yeah at the moment we the way that human nature is we're still stuck too much on going towards a place of fear and a negative cynicism to work towards things that we don't understand you know difference and we sort of categorize yep. things as a sort of us versus them create divisions you know and it slows mm-hmm. progress down and so i, I just to say, I, f- I fully, fully, fully agree with what you're saying. But I guess my follow-up question is, oh, are we going to get there someday, do you think, Julie? I mean, what, what's, what's it going to take, you know? And, and um, is- Yeah. Well, here's, here's what's interesting. Um, when I had a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, I had been uh, with my client, Jason Momoa, in Puerto Rico. I'd already had some issues from two head injuries I had in my 20s. One was skiing and one was a car accident. And I knew that there were some especially after I had my second child in my 40s and went through postpartum and I had a ruptured appendix and almost died at 44, that I had some PTSD issues. I already knew that. Triggers, you know, where something would happen and I knew my reaction to it was way over the top. But it was the third hit to the head, everything left me. I started having automatic racing thoughts, automatic negative thoughts. Like I was obsessed. I'd have obsessive thoughts. I had compulsive behavior, uh, anxiety, depression, insomnia. Uh, My triggers would throw me into panic attacks. And here's the crazy part. And I use the word crazy very specifically. Many, many times people who are suffering, when things get tough enough, that's when awareness, I'm sorry, that's my dog, starts to happen, okay? So when I got hurt, I began to attract people to me that were also having these issues. And my sister, Mary, who's a nurse, she said, Julie, I've been listening to this for over two years. Something's wrong. So she had me watch a TED Talk with Dr. Daniel Amen. And when I did, all the light bulb, it just all came together for me. And I said, oh my God, I, I have a traumatic brain injury. I need to go look at my brain. When I was at the height of this, I started getting treatment in November of 2018. And I'm going to tell you right now, I went back and made a lot of apologies. My behavior was not considered normal in society, but I was not a bad person. Hmm. I want to cycle this back to autism. I have felt the stigma and I have felt personally the fear of people thinking that I wasn't normal. And when I've talked to adults with autism, when I've looked at my niece and my two nephews with autism, and they're on a spectrum. What I realized is most people look only at the behavior. They don't see the person. If you had a bad heart or you had diabetes, would anybody say, oh, you lazy person, get up off the couch and what's wrong with you? We don't do that to people who've got something diagnosed as a physical condition. But when it comes to our brain, immediately, oh, they're crazy, they're weird, they're scary. We completely vilify individuals 
whose mental perceptions are different than our own. It's interesting you said that, you know, you went back and you, you, you know, um, apologized, made a lot of apologies. But mm-hmm. I, I kind of also think, I mean, that's very kind of you firstly and, 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 and everything, but I kind of also think that society owes you an apology as well. Because mm-hmm. it sounds like, you know, you, you've been, you would, you know, you experienced a lot of stigma, a lot of uh, mm-hmm. negative judgments, a lot of misunderstanding, and that couldn't have, that could not have helped oh. your, your uh, journey. No, but here's the thing I'll share with you because I teach love first. My job is to love myself and then love you. And the act of asking for forgiveness allowed them the opportunity to ask for forgiveness too. And that was the beauty of it is that by being the first, instead of standing there with my dukes up saying, you did this to me and I was sick and you didn't help me. I said, you know what? I bet that was scary. Was it scary to watch your older sister who's six feet tall and always been the strong one falling apart. Did I frighten you? I'm sorry, but I couldn't help it because I had a traumatic brain injury. I'm better now. Can we start over? And that act allowed them to say, oh my God, I I didn't know. And I'm sorry if I wasn't there for you. This is the power that we take back, which is what I want people to hear is there is grace in forgiveness and there is opportunity in allowing people, even when they don't allow you, to stay angry at someone because they are uneducated to my plight is only exacerbating our dissonance. In order to come together, someone has to make the first move. I fully fully agree. I fully agree. But I also think that, you know, it's also a sort of wider socio-cultural issue that's sort of ingrained in in the way that people are, are socialized and taught to think and i just think that's gonna gonna also gonna take wider policy shifts and mm-hmm. wider cultural shifts to really um take on what you're saying julie which is you know forgiveness first in the macro of it are always going to judge from the behavior without understanding the motivation for that behavior, without understanding the physical condition precipitating that behavior, then we move immediately to judgment of the human being. And that is where we're stuck. We're stuck socially. We're stuck in judgment mode, you know, as opposed to understanding mode, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, it's like saying, you know, you know, you know how we say, you know, innocent till proven guilty. You know, we would never say guilty until proven innocent. That's where we're at with with the judgment and understanding view of it. It needs to be be understanding before you can make judgments. But at the moment, it's judgment before understanding. Our society, because people whose brains were not working uh, as well, they were thought to have been possessed. Yeah, and that's still a lot of Judeo-Christian and even throughout all other religions, the idea that there is a source of evil in the world, but there's no source of evil. There's only a source of love. And so when there's a source of love, but through experience, people start to close themselves off to that love. They then begin to take behavior from defending themselves and surviving. What was happening in my brain is I was always in fight or flight There was so much blood flow to certain parts of my brain that I was in a constant state of anxiety. And when you are in a constant state of anxiety, you can't make rational decisions. Logic is gone. So let's turn this on its head. Many, many people who are responsible for this reactionary behavior, they themselves are suffering. They themselves are coming from fear, not love. And they are defending and protecting themselves against something they don't understand. So the compassion that we have 
and we want others to bring to these challenges, we need to exhibit it for those who are acting out of their fear. Many people were raised, my grandfather was bipolar and spent time in a state institution. And my grandmother was incredibly strong and embarrassed and, and you know, she protected her family. No one talked about it. So the stigma of these challenges is generational and has been around for a long, long time. So as we begin to accept ourselves, and James, you teach your child to accept himself, and you reflect back to him his positive aspects, what begins to happen is this resistance, this anxiety begins to soften. If I walk in a room ready to have a fight because I'm sure you're going to judge me, I've sealed my fate. So the journey does start within ourselves. Not waiting for others to validate or appreciate us, but validate and appreciate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, self-acceptance. As, as, yeah, yeah. I, I, do, I do quite a bit. I'm a, I'm a researcher. My day job, I'm a university academic. And I do, I've done some um, research into the concept of self-stigma. Mm-hmm. And we did, a, we did a systematic review where we looked at all of the evidence to see whether or not parents and carers of autistic children, mm-hmm. if they experience self-stigma, or, yeah. or wider stigma, does that impact upon their mental health? And when we looked at all the literature, it was clear as day, consistent and powerful. Right. Really tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you, I mean, if if you're able, this is the, I mean, this is the, some of the part of the problem is that it's very, very, very difficult for many people to, to go on that journey of self-acceptance, reject the stigma that's coming towards them mm-hmm. you know and and see see things you know see the beauty in things and and you know often people's circumstances are quite bad they're quite difficult mm-hmm. you know and they're very stressed and it's hard to break the chain so it's it's very difficult we need to support this whole approach i think it needs to be you know social policies and services you know our whole kind of socio-cultural way of thinking needs to be about what you're saying essentially julie but that's where we want to arrive at, for sure. You know, this idea right. that, you know, um, we, 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 lo- we love ourselves, be kind to ourselves, accept it, and, exactly. and sort of uh, rejecting any stigma so it doesn't affect you or your, or your family. It, there's, it, it, all of that is beautiful and, and magical, and it f- for sure works. But it's, it's, um, I think we have a long way to go before society's doing that more more wide scale uh level than they than they are would you agree with that you know i'm really curious because you're in california we don't get many american we've only had one or two american uh, guests before and i was curious as to you know where you think america is at when it comes to all of this you know in terms of um autism acceptance uh understanding um, and all of these issues that we're talking about today as to you know needing to be a place of of understanding before judgment, self-acceptance, you know, looking after yourself, self-compassion. Where's America, in your view, where, where, where's the country well, at? Part of what's happening is that parents of autistic children have started finding their voice uh, in television, film. Uh, there have been many films. There's a, a great show called The Good Doctor about a boy with autism who's a physician. One of the biggest misconceptions is that people who, have, who are autistic aren't smart. That's ridiculous. They're not even related. Intelligence and autism have no correlation. So we definitely have a child in our, our family that has Asperger's and uh, he's brilliant. He just processes information differently. 
When I was in my back brace, it was up to my neck. It was a ring here, bar down the front, two bars down the back, a leather saddle over my hips, a block of wood pushing into one side and another leather pad pushing into the other to push my spine straight. I looked ridiculous and people always thought I was stupid. They would talk about me in the third person. We have been conditioned by society because that is how we survived in the wild to assess danger. Part of our brain is about assessing danger. Is that a friend or is that a foe? Does it look like me? Then it's probably safe. Well, that's gone right out the window because there's a lot of people who look like me who are capable of doing some pretty awful things, okay? So we need a new paradigm of how we meet and greet and assess each other. Slow down, slow down, contemplate yourself. 10 minutes in the morning, set your alarm clock 10 minutes earlier and wake up. Come into your body, take a deep breath and thank whatever you believe that you actually could wake up today, that your heart is beating, that the sun is in the sky and the planets aren't bumping into each other. Tremendous amount of well-being. So finding something to appreciate about your own personal experience. You may not like everything about yourself. Find one thing. And from that place, begin to practice the art of appreciation. And what you'll find is that you start to resonate with more things to appreciate. So when you wake up and you know that you have a child that has special needs, that needs you, give yourself the gift of 10 minutes to love yourself, to connect with yourself. And when you need a timeout, oh, parents, take it. Even if it means going to the bathroom, go in and breathe. In the space of a minute, you can adjust how you feel. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I had the traumatic brain injury, I couldn't find that space. So I had to call people and say, talk me down. I can't find the space. And thank God there were people that took that phone call. And this is a societal thing that we can do. Be willing to talk each other off the ledge. That's why these groups that you have, that's why, you know, James being able to find people of like mind on the internet, let us hold the space. That's the challenge I make to all your listeners. Really important words. Thank you so much for that, Julie. I just do want to sort of highlight how important, you know, social support is and knowing that you have access to something like that. And I do agree, you know, communities, the autistic community, and this is why we have to look after each, each other because there is so much, unfortunately, there is a much higher rate of loneliness and mm-hmm. social rejection, social exclusion, and, you know, sm- smaller amounts of social capital in the autistic community. So it's even more important that, that we, we sort of help each other, um, for those reasons uh, you describe, if I could just pick something up, and then James, I'm sure you're dying to ask one, ask some questions. But I just want to pick something up, and then I'll I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> just rewinding a little bit, you mentioned a few TV shows that um, uh, are portraying autistic people, um, and I did want to ask you your sort of overall um, view as to whether you think that if um, in in Hollywood and in the, the industry that you know, if an actor came out as autistic, um, as, let's say a reasonably well known actor, do you think yeah. that would hurt their chances or anything like that? No, we've moved beyond you know admitting that you have a different sexual orientation. 
uh, gender identity. We've moved beyond that. Uh, the question is um, being able to write those stories. You see, because here's the pushback and I'll, I'll just share this from my own personal experience. I wrote a play called Blood, Sweat and Tears based on the music of Blood, Sweat and Tears about an interracial relationship in the South in 1968. I'm white. So I brought in my friends who are black and I had to really sit and listen to what they felt worked and where they I needed help as a white person to understand their experience. So this is where it gets really interesting is great. You want to write a story about someone who's autistic. Do you understand autism? Can you actually write it accurately? So we need people who are artistic and writers to actually study this type of, of expression and then they can actually write about it. But also you see, I fully agree, but also in your, your particular story, you reached out, you were reproactive and you reached mm-hmm. out. Right. So I hope that, you know, people, if they are writing about autistic people and the autistic experience, if they don't have that personal experience that they, they're able to reach out. You know, I think that's also really important to, to sort of take a participatory approach to kind of co-production of storylines with the lived experiences that that well, can't harm. Here's the backlash of that. Cause even when I did that, there were those who felt it was presumptuous of me as a white woman to write about anything. And I had to say, well, then no men should ever be able to write female characters. No straight person should ever be able to write, nor should a homosexual be able to write about a straight person. So let's get really clear. It's a human condition and we all are human. So it's about conversation, listening, being willing to hear a dissenting opinion and being willing to be told you didn't get it right. You kind of screwed that up. You know what I'm saying? We have a lot of talented writers and, and hopefully we're going to see more actors come forward who are on a spectrum that they can be comfortable saying, you know, this has been my experience. I want to share it. Thank you, Julie. I'll, I'll pass over the, the mic to James. Hi there. So Babylon 5 really was one of those shows that I just I rewatched it and rewatched it. And I think it was just such a comfort um, knowing that there was somewhere to um, escape from uh, a world that didn't really understand what, what I wanted from from the world. Um, there's a lot of good messages in that um, in that show and um, good examples uh, about how how we can change change our world. I know that there was um, in the first season the lead actor you Michael. Sort of, you, you watch it through and then you wonder why did he come out of the series and that kind of thing. And I've I've read a little bit about um, that he was having some mental health problems and that the creator of the show handled it very, very sensitively from what what I've read. Um, Uh And I just, uh, you know... Let me tell you what I know, and I don't know a lot, but looking back after having done the work I've done in my documentary, I, I feel like I have a little more understanding than I did back then. So at the time that Michael was hired, we actually were on Broadway at the same time. He was in a play, A Few Good Men, and I was doing Grand Hotel, the musical. And one of the things that Doug Netter, the executive producer, and Joe Straczynski, J. Michael Straczynski, we call him Joe, one of the things they loved were actors who were trained on the stage. Michael, myself, Andreas Katsoulis, we all came from the theater. And one of the things that happens when you're working as an alien, it's called mask work. 
Okay. So you have to be able to work through prosthetics. You have to be able to project. You have to be able to handle sort of heavy dialogue and, and really be in the fantasy of another world, right? Stage makes you have to go to that level of imagination to create that world. We have to make you believe it with our expression. So they loved theatrical people. And, and Michael was hired because Michael had an extremely sensitive quality and yet he was very strong. And my recollection of Michael was that he struggled a bit to memorize his lines. Mm -hmm. Now that's a cognitive function thing. I don't know what his diagnosis was and I don't want to comment on that. My experience was that the stress of doing that character five days a week and the stress became too much that it began to magnify what probably were some milder conditions. But once, you know, because when you do a play, you rehearse for eight weeks, you're on stage for two hours, eight shows a week, and you're done. When you're doing a movie or a TV show, it's 10 hours minimum, especially if you're a lead character. And sometimes on some shows, like when I did Star Trek, I had a 20-hour day. It's extremely hard emotionally and mentally. It's very challenging. I imagine it would have been even more challenging than nowadays because it was really ahead of its time. A lot of yeah. there was a lot of predictions like the internet didn't even exist then. But but there was an internet, you know, that kind of thing. So I know. Um, Joe's brilliant. Yeah, Joe, yeah. So, Joe was like a seer. He could see everything in the future. I love that about him. Same thing with Gene Roddenberry. But I think what happened for Michael was there came a point where there was quality of life and there was his job. And so he stepped away and they brought in Bruce Boxleitner. Um, Joe didn't want to do that. He didn't want me to go. I left because of the makeup. It was ripping up my face. It was ruining my eyesight. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't justify at 32 years old doing that to myself for four more years. Um, Loved the character, loved the experience, but there was a physical limitation for me. And that's what was true for Michael. There was a physical quality of life that was eroding because of the challenges of being the lead of a a sci-fi series where every day you're working for 10 hours in a warehouse. You know, it was a converted warehouse. It wasn't even a real studio. It was a converted warehouse and it was hard. And he made a choice for the quality of his life. And I remember the, the young woman that he ended up marrying and she took great care of him. And we saw Michael from time to time. Um, he made the best choice for his quality of life. I mean, I've seen this happen with another actor. I won't say who, but I did a series where the actor came from working in movies where he would do, you know, three days a week, and then he'd do three more days on the film. He came into a series and had to work five days a week. 12 hours a day and he couldn't take it emotionally. It was too much. So when you're an artist, you tend to be more sensitive and empathetic anyway. But if you have any cognitive issue, memory loss, difficulty with executive function, you have to look at the quality of your life. And I think that's what Michael chose was a quality of life. Um, I totally agree with you. I think because it was ahead of its time, they weren't able to rely on on the special effects that they have nowadays. So there was a lot of a focus on the acting mm-hmm. and that would have put a lot more stress on, on, on everyone's mental health. Yeah, I can understand that. I only came to understand that 
quite recently, really, when I was thinking about it, because I was, I, I used to mourn, <laughs> why didn't they continue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I loved it so much, that show, and Star Trek particularly. And I, I think um, I, I'm not alone in loving it. I think a lot of the, find a lot of the fans um, are from the autistic community as well. Mm -hmm. I, I have, I have found that yeah. true. And I think it is the acceptance. I think it is yeah. willing to see you as a human being before I look at, you know, your behavior necessarily. I mean, it's, it's the way Joe and, you know, Joe himself, we would say, and I don't want to make a, a too big of a comment about it, but there are many people that he wasn't the most socially engaging person. You had to learn how to listen to him in a different way. It's about being willing to, con to connect. If you wake up in the morning and say, I'd like to connect with my fellow human beings, you will find yourself connecting. I, we have a lot of homeless where I live. And, and um, there have been these beautiful moments where we found our way to communicate. Much as you have with your son, you found your particular way to let him know that he is safe, that he is loved, and that you're there. And that's what I hope we start doing for each other. You're safe, you're loved, and I'm right here. Fully, fully agree. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and I, I hope that people listen. They can go to my website, juliecaitlinbrown.com. They can get my audiobooks, Love First, The Beginning and Love First and The Artist. And um, it talks a lot about these things. Look for my film, Noise, hopefully coming out later this year or first of beginning of uh, 2021. Um, we're all in this together, guys. None of us are getting out of here alive. So we need to just kind of calm down and second thought. You're going to think that first thought, but the second one, that's your choice. But we can do it. One by one by one, we can change the world. Thank you for doing what you're doing, gentlemen. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's very kind. And it's really yeah. been an... Your children are so lucky to have you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for speaking to us. Of course. Yeah, yeah it's been a real honor. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Take cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.